Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. All enable electronic communications between management and staff, but do they also present workplace risks for management? I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and this is the ABA Journal Podcast. Today, we're discussing Workplace 2.0 with employment plaintiff and defense lawyers. Also joining us is Rex Gradless, a recent law school graduate who has gathered more than 75,000 followers on Twitter. Alejandro Caffarelli, you have a Chicago plaintiff and defense practice. Tell us what you've come across in Discovery when you're checking out management and decision makers' Facebook pages and Twitter feeds. Sure. Actually, uh, the, the vast majority of our uh, practice is plaintiff side work. Um, so I'll, I'll discuss my experience based on, on that context first. And uh, it actually started um, as something that was sprung on me in um, in discovery. I was sitting with a client in a deposition, and the defense counsel all of a sudden pulled out a bunch of Facebook pages uh, and this was a, a sex harassment case uh, showing that my client was less than pure uh, and uh, asking her all kinds of questions about it. And, and uh, I was taken completely by surprise. And uh, after that, uh, my, the lesson that I learned was to always uh, ask questions about social media in, in our intake questionnaire. And so now every client that comes through our door is going to tell us exactly um, if they're online and what they're saying online and what they're doing online, um, just so that we know uh, what to expect. And so what, what I've done in, to answer your question was to flip that around now, uh, and primarily in sex harassment cases where I can uh, anticipate that uh, a harasser, alleged harasser, a decision maker is going to be um, arguing character type evidence. In other words, that uh, there's no reason that they would do this. I, I like to look at what's out there in terms of the social media. So, for example, if the, the alleged harasser has a, a Facebook page uh, uh, full of, um, let's say, inappropriate uh, pictures and, uh, and links, um, I want to know that. Um, so I've, I've, been, uh, I've been incorporating social media uh, related issues into my discovery both at the at the written stage and, and in um, uh, in depositions. Also joining us is Gary Mathiason, a partner with Littler Mendelssohn in San Francisco. Gary, what do you think about what Alex just said? Well, I think that it's representing litigation the way it's handled today. It used to be that it was adequate to uh, do a Google search. And now the social media has become uh, fairly prominent in a lot of the discovery and litigation that we do. What I just heard about the Facebook pages uh, squares with my experiences. Uh, we also are looking for Twitter. Twitter is harder to find in a, in a format in which you can use it for discovery. But increasingly, there are a lot of texting and other social media that are being used through company servers and uh, do show up in some of the discovery. And I think increasingly over time, that's going to become a ripe area for exploration in just about every kind of litigation we have. Gary, you mentioned that Twitter was a little bit more difficult to search. Can you tell me, how do you go about uh, going through it at this stage? Well, it's there isn't like a, a Facebook page that you can go to. Uh, it's harder to get stored information that comes from Twitter, but sometimes you'll find it uh, that the Twitters have been actually saved and will be discoverable. Probably the um, 
most common situation we're encountering now is that there's a heavy use of text messaging done on company servers. So considering all this, how long have management side employment lawyers been thinking about social media in the workplace context? Molly DiBianca, uh, you're an associate with Conaway, Stargate, and Taylor. What can you tell me about trends in terms of social media and best practices for managers? Well, I think we've been thinking of, the, the lawyers have been thinking about it for quite a while. I think probably much longer than um, probably than business leaders have really uh, taken to it. I think the first seminar I gave on um, social media and specifically with respect to blogging, employees who blog, I think it was 2004. So it's it's been a while. Um, you know, at that time, I think the room was there was about 150 human resource professionals and business leaders in the seminar, and we said, uh, "Who here could knows what a blog is that you could actually stand up and explain it, not sort of just you know roughly I've heard of the term, but who could actually describe a blog for us?" And no one raised their hand out of 150 some uh, HR professionals and business professionals. No one knew so much so that they could actually describe it. So. It, uh, as far as trends goes, I'm sort of sorry to say that it's been a slow process in identifying um, and sort of taking the reins from a business angle and saying, okay, we're going to find out what social media is and deal with it. It's been sort of more, I think, of an ostrich head in the sand approach uh, until probably the last year or so. I'd say over the last maybe two years, uh, there's been finally some sort of interest in saying, hey, look, we need to get out. We can't get ahead of it at this point. We can't get in front of it. It's uh, far beyond that, I think, but at least recognizing that social media is not going to go away, going to go away, and that the best practice is to actually get out there, find out what it is, get some education, and then um, deal with it in whatever way is appropriate for the organization, whether that's a formal policy or a set of written guidelines or just education uh, with employees and staff. I mean, I think that has been the, the sort of trend, and I think that that's probably in line with the best practice. I think that the best practice for social media as a whole from an employment perspective is to, one, find out what it is and make sure that you understand it, the leaders of the organization truly understand what it is. Uh, and you can't really make decisions until you understand what you're talking about. And then once you get some education internally, then sit down as a as a group, as a group of leaders, and say, okay, what is our our corporate culture, what is our firm dynamic, and what's appropriate for our group. You know, it may be a policy. It may not be a policy. You know, I think I've seen a very big trend towards guidelines as opposed to policies um, in the sense that, you know, there's, there's it's more of an educational component. Um, but the policies is definitely over the last year, last 16 months probably has been what I've seen a huge push for is that the people have come to sort of go, okay, we get social media, we're on board with social media significantly more than we ever have been in the past, but now what? Now what do we do with it? And, you know, we're sort of becoming aware of the, the risks that are out there and how do we deal with them. So that's, that's probably the number one trend is the, is the desire to get a policy or a set of guidelines in place. Gary, what are you seeing specifically in some of these best practices policies? Well, I think that uh, there's a tremendous acceleration in the attention that's being given by management and organizations toward social media. I think this has to be put into context. Mid-February of this year, we had 400 million people on Facebook. That's 8 billion minutes per day 
just since 2007, you had a doubling in the amount of uh, social networking taking place, number of users. This is a tremendous flow of information. Uh, one of the statistics that really struck me was that with regard to Twitter, 62% of it, 62% of the people using Twitter say they use it primarily or only at work. So with that, what we've seen is that companies and organizations have been very unprepared for something that's coming into the work environment, whether they anticipated it or not. And most of the policies that are in place and practices don't necessarily square with uh, social media. Less than 10% of employers currently have social media policies. So we are recommending that there be an analysis by the leaders as to what the effect is on their organization and how much it's being used. And then we are suggesting for best practices that there be a policy established. And I think in the course of whether it's a policy or guidelines, there's an analysis of uh, how it's being used, what the risks are with regard to defamation, loss of company information, and uh, some affirmative action taken by the company as to how it wants to use social media. And I've had a couple of clients say, well, I don't think we're using it at all. We really don't need a policy, and come back not too long later saying, I guess there's a lot of it going on in my workplace, and I really need to get a handle on it. Rex Bradless, the man behind social media law student and the Twitterer extraordinaire. From what the employment lawyers are saying to you, how does this comport with how social media actually works? Uh, well, I, I mean, the social media in, in the workplace uh, context uh, is uh, constantly changing and evolving uh, rapidly. And I think it's important to, um, you know, define social media or your social networks that you're talking about um, because you might have a law firm uh, or there's several bar associations that are currently creating uh, closed social networks to members of their state bars. Um, there's internal networks that, that law firms or uh, businesses are creating um, to, you know, um, basically manage inf internal information. There's a specific practice area networks that you might only be a member of in your certain niche. So there's there's the closed versus the open networks, the public um, networks such as Facebook and Twitter that are that are all the buzz. Um, and so there's sort of the you know question of do you know how do we as a company want to do we want our employers engaging on these open networks or do we encourage it um, only in these closed spheres where we have more of a control over the networks. And I, I guess sort of the, the best practices portion piece it would be um, sort of depending on the culture of your business or your law firm, uh, something that Molly alluded to. Um, you know, are all members of your, your practice area, you know, members of this social network, then maybe, you know, your policy would, would encourage your, your lawyers to be members of this social network um, because all the members of the practice niche are also engaging in these social networks. So, um, you know, is all friending encouraged or discouraged between employers and employees? 
Um, and I and I think also uh, focusing on a little bit of definitions. Uh, you know, in two, 2004 and 2006. Um, college students when when Facebook was first released uh, college students were struggling with the question of well this person really isn't my friend you know I knew them in grade school um, and there's Twitter followers you know what does that mean in terms of you know the employee-employee relationship I think it's currently evolving in the corporate world and that's yet to be sort of flushed out and Rex for young professionals like yourself who've grown up online, what do you tend to think when managers try to make social media connections with you online? Well, I can't speak for everyone. I, I just, in my experience, I guess um, it, it depends, again, on the network you're using. If you're talking about a public social media network outlet, uh, Facebook, Twitter, I mean, it, it can be an overlap of professional and personal life. So that's sort of a, a delicate balance that young professionals and um, well now as Gary alluded to 44 million uh, Facebook accounts I guess are dealing with that that delicate balance Um, but I mean I think it depends on the context of that friend request if you are friends with your employer personally uh, then maybe you wouldn't be so hesitant to you know connect with them on a, a public social network and then again if you know you're the one in initiating it I think you run the risk of, um, uh, I guess, seeming a little too eager to be friends with an employer or, you know, I think it just depends on that nature, that relationship that you have personally. I, I, um, I guess young professionals, uh, many who have went, been on social networks for such a long time, I guess, um, pretty much don't view a f- a Facebook friend is necessarily a, tr- a real friend or a follower as someone who really would follow you, you know, off a cliff or anything. But um, I, I just think uh, younger professionals basically let the, want their employers to take that initiative. And if they feel comfortable, they'd be willing to accept that social media connection. I'm curious, is, is it conceivable that courts could find it coercive for management to make friend requests? Um, well, in, in I, I, I do see an element of coercion in it, and I would analogize it maybe to a, a manager asking an employee out for drinks after work. It's, it's the, maybe the electronic equivalent of that. And so it really depends on the context, as, as Breck said. If, if you're talking about, uh, you know, a young uh, female uh, employee who is being uh, uh, friended by, you know, the older male manager, and then she later brings a harassment claim, you know, could this be used as evidence in 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 in, in the claim? I, I could see it being done. I, I haven't personally seen it, but but I could see that being analogized to the manager asking her out to a bar. It's not quite the same thing, but um, it could be a piece of evidence uh, of, of circumstantial evidence used in the in in a, in a case like that. But what I would look at primarily from the employee's perspective is for patterns. So let's say uh, I'm, I'm bringing my my uh, plaintiff's case. And it's a, a race discrimination case, as, as you said. Uh, I, I would want to look at the decision maker's use of social media and, and say the decision maker uh, has friended only employees or all of the employees outside of my client's protect, protected category. I would then want to use that evidence to show uh, a preference uh, or a discriminatory intent on, on the part of the decision maker. Gary, what do you think about that? Well, I think 
it was highlighted earlier that there is a breaking down of the line between personal life and business life, and I think that creates a lot of potential confusion and danger when you deal with it in the workplace. I think it could be highly coercive. It goes back to a best practice or decision on the part of the organization as to how they want to use it. Uh, I want to say for a minute that there is kind of this assumption that there's a generational divide in the use of social media. And to some extent that's true, but it's interesting that on Facebook, uh, the majority of accounts are for individuals 35 and over, and it's becoming pervasive such that it needs to be addressed. Also, there's a trend on Facebook for employer organizations to start using it to advertise their operation. Whole Foods, for example, has each store encouraged to make a Facebook account, and it gets extended. I think when something like that happens, then there's greater responsibility on the part of the employer for what's experienced when you actually get on the page. So I think you need, again, to establish some standards. Let me give you one that uh, really represents a challenge on social media. Uh, I would guess a lot of the listeners have accounts on LinkedIn. A lot of employer organizations encourage accounts on LinkedIn. It's a great way of connecting with professionals, expanding your business community. Is that account owned by the company or owned by the individual, done on a work computer, who takes it with them when the relationship ends? And uh, what if you elect not to want to make the connection and your company is encouraging you to do that? Is that potentially something that's going to be adverse to your career development? And does it also then expose your private life, your private friends, with your business friends, or do you have to establish separate accounts? Uh, These are the kinds of questions we're struggling with. There's one court decision that I think probably a lot of people are familiar with that deals with this issue of uh, coercion, and that's the Houston case where effectively there was a uh, private social network with a password that was complaining about the employer, and uh, a manager went to a third party, another employee, a greeter, and said, we'd like to get in and see what's happening on this space. Will you lend us your password? And the individual agreed, and sure enough, there was defamation of the employer taking place, and two people got fired as a consequence of it. So when that case was litigated, the question came up, was that password freely given or was it coerced? And without any testimony really that there was any threat, uh, the conclusion of the court was that just the circumstances made it coerced and therefore the entry into the account and the networking space was inappropriate and the evidence couldn't be used. Okay. Uh, Well, Wally, what, if any, sort of restrictions do you think companies should give managers for using social media, particularly if they do it on their own time? Well, okay, let's see. That's a a huge question. I think it depends on every organization, but I think 
you actually, at the end of that, you actually brought up a great point, which is the fact that they're doing it on their own time. I think that is actually, and, and Rex sort of alluded to this earlier, I think it's actually really critical to look at that and assess that at the very outset when you're sitting down to talk about policies or guidelines and to say, what are we going to regulate or address in our policy or guidelines? Is it going to be um, is it going to be work, working time, social media, such as what Rex was talking about, the, you know, the, the internal networks that are created by the employer for the purpose of use by the employees? Are we talking about that? Or, or, or another example would be um, if I blog on behalf of my employer, uh, that would, you know, even if I do that sort of outside of the normal working hours, uh, that's something that I'm doing on, in the course and scope of my employment. So that's going to be uh, work-related social media. And then there's the, the non-work-related social media, the, the everything else that, that, that social media can encompass. So you have to sort of sit down and say, what are we talking about when we're going to talk about these guidelines, and do we want to regulate um, at all in the, in the non, non-working time social media context? I think the answer probably is yes. Um, even if it's not a regulation per se, if it's just going to be guidelines or education, I think you absolutely have to deal with it because – the reality is it's still going. It's, it's going on. It's going on much more to, to a much larger degree than, than the internal social media is. And, and to ignore it in the context of a of guideline or a policy is sort of taking that ostrich approach again. So I think you really have to deal with it. Um, the extent to which you do regulate it is, again, going to depend on your company culture. I personally think, from my experience, has been that I, I think – you know, when, when my clients ask me, I want to craft a social media policy, and I, well, what should we do about the friending situation? You know, and a supervisor friending a, a subordinate direct report, and then vice versa. How should we deal with that, if at all? I think the answer is that you don't. I don't. I. I my preference is that employers do not permit so, uh, supervisors to make friend requests to their direct report. Past that, I think it's a, a corporate culture issue. In other words, if you want to permit the direct report to make a friend request to the supervisor, I think that's you know sort of more of an internal question than it is a policy question. But for me, I don't think it's a good idea to have supervisors making the friend request to direct reports. I, I do think it's coercive. I don't think – I think Rex is – probably right that, you know, uh, employers or the direct reports can, you know, especially young professionals can speak up and say they don't want to, but I think that it's difficult to do that. And I think what they end up doing is accepting the friend request and maybe, especially for younger uh, for younger employees, I don't know that they all always grasp the, the, the seriousness of that and that they don't necessarily think, well, you know, maybe I'm going to say something not so great about my workplace. For example, I'm going to say, gosh, it's Friday afternoon, and I can't wait to get out of here and have a weekend off. And that's really pretty innocuous, frankly. I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying that. Uh, let's just assume the employee does it on his or her lunch hour and doesn't do it on working time. But if their supervisor is there, is you know, gets that, that update and sees that, they really may take it personally. And I think that that just sort of sets the groundwork for problems down the road, and I, and without the employee even necessarily realizing that they may have done something uh, that could have, you know, hurt the employer's or the supervisor's feelings, or you know, you know, to whatever context you want to to phrase that in. But I think that it, it's my my advice is generally to to restrict supervisors from making friend requests to direct reports. But you know, and if you want to the the other way around, vice versa, from the direct report to the supervisor, I don't know that that's necessary. 
Um, and in the states that do have off-duty conduct laws, they have to be, you know, conscious of that as well. But I, I think that it's uh, it, the potential is probably larger for damage than people at least initially realize. This is Alex Capriol. If I could just add one point to that, um, the uh, uh, when when uh, when you're considering these these policies from the plaintiff's perspective, and you you, you actually alluded it uh, alluded to my concern right at the end. Um, in Illinois here, for example, we have the Right to Privacy in the Workplace Act, and uh, these acts, for people who aren't familiar with them, were largely pushed by the tobacco companies and the alcohol companies, mm-hmm. um, creating uh, a right to privacy with regard to off-duty conduct. So um, if somebody wants to smoke or drink until 3 in the morning, they can do that without putting their job uh, in, in jeopardy. And the fear from these companies was that uh, employers would start to outlaw, outlaw tobacco use and alcohol use by all employees just to preemptively deal with any problems in the workplace. Now, I haven't personally seen any cases addressing how and to what extent these right to privacy in the workplace type laws relate to social media issues or how they're affected by social media issues. But I can see that as, as being something that we as, as the plaintiff's firm are going to be looking uh, into in the future uh, to look at these policies, to scrutinize these policies. And if you have an employer with a, a blanket uh, prohibition on using social media, I, I can certainly see that being tested, uh, if not by us, by, by other plaintiff's firms. Just to follow up on Alex's point, which is an excellent one, um, you know, as far as the, and I don't know anything about the Illinois state law and whether there's a, you know, a right, private right of action, which I assume that there would be, but one way to deal with that, both for that specific law, but also for the other um, states that have similar or even, you know, more expansive uh, off-duty conduct protections, is to not make it a policy as much, and to make it a guideline. So. That goes back to my sort of philosophy on at getting education to employees and especially supervisors and to say, you know, get in front of them and say, here's some things you want to consider. This may be why you may not want to make a friend request to your direct reports um, instead of prohibiting them, which, in, you know, in, in the Illinois case sounds like it's not an option, um, or at least it wouldn't be a, a best practice option, you know, in the event that the law is, is construed in such a way that that would be, um, that would be in violation of that statute. So. One alternative is to say, instead of making a policy, is to say, hey, let's get some education so we enter into this with best ju- using our ju- best judgment based on, you know, things that we, you know, we as, a, as an organization have given some thought to and can give you some potential outlies of or, or, or fallouts, rather, of, of your actions. And I think that sort of, for me, that's that sort of preventative philosophy that sort of rings true uh, across the board. Whether it's a policy or a guideline, I think the idea is to get people informed because people don't want to make, you know, don't want to make mistakes in social um, settings, whether it's social media or face-to-face. So part of it is just getting, I think, getting some some etiquette guidelines out there for people. Um, Rex, I'm curious what you think about some of these policy ideas and if you think they would work with in terms of how social media works. Uh, well, yeah, it's, uh, specifically with the the friend requests for the employees that you direct or the employer that you directly report to, um, you know, that might that might comport with tradition for right now, I guess, how um, the nature of social media is. But the the way in which it's heading, um, you know, it might be the only way that employers tend to sometimes communicate with employees. Uh, there's some people who use Facebook, uh, you know, just as regularly as an email account. Um, there's people who only 
message me through these social networks, um, Facebook, and um, don't even email me anymore. Um, so that, again, it's the nature of just the uh, communication tools that we use is is changing, and, I, and that's where a lot of the fundamental, a lot of these fundamental issues um, arise. So. Um, but I guess my advice towards some of the policies that a corporation or law firm might be using with social media is probably, um, you know, again, in that context of, your, of the culture of your, the social networks that you know your employers or employees are engaging in and the ones that you permit um, as sort of a business tool, um, I would probably be more similar to their email policy. Um, you know, that's electronic communication that can be thrown up on a blog in seconds by anyone at any time. Uh, you know, it's really not necessarily as private as any of these social networks. Um, so I, I would try to, I guess, make a policy more similar to an, an email policy that, um, you know, a corporation or law firm has. But again, it would also depend on their culture. Um, I mean, you, you wouldn't really just tell everybody, well, sign up for all these social networks and do whatever, you know, do whatever you think makes sense um, because then everyone's just signed up for networks and, you know, they're not really differentiating themselves from, uh, their competitors. It's just everyone on a network, the same network, and it's nothing new. So, um, I guess those are my my thoughts about some of the policy considerations that you know the, the businesses are making. And okay. this is Gary Mathiasen. I think one area that really needs attention is the issue of hiring and um, social networks. We're finding that a majority of uh, substantial majority of employers, whether it's their official policy or not, social media sites get reviewed as part of the hiring process. And it brings in a great deal of information about the individual. So from one standpoint, you would alert someone applying for a job to be aware of what they have posted. On the other hand, a lot of things that we've been teaching that you don't ask during a job interview are presented in stark terms during this kind of a review. So you need to make a decision how you're going to use it. And I think one future area of litigation that we're going to see is to the extent that the company affirmatively is using this kind of review, is it a consumer report and does it have to comply with the Fair Credit Reporting Act? And we're just starting to see that evolve. There's an app that you can put on an iPhone that uh, allows you to do a quick background check on the individual. And that's becoming, I think there are over a million users of it. Uh, I think we have a real challenge in the workplace to figure out how we're going to use it and what we're going to do with it. And I heard earlier one of our participants highlighted the importance of education, and I think I would underscore that. I also think that uh, some basic training can help uh, start differentiating between when you're doing something as an agent of the company or through a company-sponsored program versus completely privately and start becoming aware of the record that you're making and how it might be used 
both for internal disciplinary purposes but also for liability and litigation. Gary, do you have a general sense of approximately how many Fortune 100 companies have some sort of social media policy in place? Ten percent. That's the current number, and I think Nielsen uh, put that out, and that squares with my understanding. Let me fast forward a year, just one year, and I think that number will be 30%. In two years, I think it will be 80%. It's that fast. I remember and, highlighting Twitter in September of 2007, and everybody thought we were talking Greek. <laughs> and now it's everywhere, and especially in the workplace. I think the point made earlier about the fact that this is how a lot of people communicate is there, and I think unless there is some awareness and education, there's a thinking that, uh, well, this is like a, a casual phone call that I would make at work and not recognize that it's taking on characteristics of being associated with the workplace, let alone where it can be actually sponsored by the workplace. And I, I just want, this is Rex. I just wanted to add to Gary uh, uh, pointing out that this is uh, a hiring hiring issue as well. Um, I, I'm aware of instances that, um, it, not in private practice, but actually uh, state and local municipalities requiring uh, new lawyers to supply um, social media information, including passwords to all of their social media outlets, um, which which was um, bizarre to me. And, and I've had people confide in me and my thought, you know, their thoughts on on that kind of practice, you know, asking for passwords to, you know, what can conceivably some people may consider, you know, analogous to their email account if they're communicating privately on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, so I thought that that's, that's – I mean, I know that's something that's going on right now and um, just kind of an interesting twist on the whole hiring um, hiring aspect of of this. Another – this is Molly, and I'll just follow up on Rex's point, which is an excellent one. I've actually only heard of the one instance with the requesting the password um, from potential uh, – from candidates, job, job applicants and candidates, and that went over like the Hindenburg. But – uh, what I have seen a big trend in lately, especially in the financial sector, is uh, employers who have, during the job interview, actually ask the candidate to come around to the other side of the desk and log into his or her Facebook account um, as an administrator, so, and as, as, as himself. Uh, and that enables the employer to see everything that's there instead of, you know, just having, um, you know, I assume because it's, there's, there's more and more people are catching on to the idea that, hey, maybe I don't want my whole life out there for everyone to see, and let me try to take steps to implement some privacy settings on my Facebook account so that you know, certain people can see some things and certain people can see others. Uh, and so you know, I was speaking at Wharton Business School a few weeks ago, and this was the big sort of message that I was getting from the students to whom I was speaking, and this was just, unacceptable to them. And I, I have to say, I, I really agree. I think that there's better ways to go about it than to ask someone, ask for someone's password, which I think is the worst case scenario. And then, you know, second to that, asking someone to log in as an administrator, ask themselves in their Facebook. I'm not, I, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of that. I think if there's a better way to do it, and if the employer, especially in highly regulated industries like the financial sector, 
you know, if there's a legitimate reason that they want to see everything, I think what they do is they tell candidates in advance that they intend to do it and that they either tell them or put it in writing would be my preference and give them an explanation of exactly what they're looking for so that the students know or the candidates know we're only looking for evidence of, you know, um, um, you leaking confidential information from a former employer or uh, you engaging in illegal activities. You know, those are things that we're looking for. We don't care at all what your, uh, who your, you know, your friends are, if you drink on the weekends, assuming you're, you know, your legal age to do so, and, or, or what your religious association is. You know, we don't care about those things. Here's what we are looking for when we ask you to log on. Because I think, again, I think it's that education and, and that openness, the transparency, that really is the fundamental basis of social media is that communication and transparency. So, I think you need to, to follow that through and, and communicate with people why you're doing things and what you're specifically looking for, and that would alleviate a lot of the, the fears and concerns that student, students have. As far as, pa- as far as requesting passwords, I, my personal opinion on that is why would you ever hire anyone who, who gives away confidential information upon request? I think that would be the last person on earth I'd want to hire um, in, you know, in the, co- the world of common sense, putting aside the world of social media, just the world of common sense, I wouldn't want to have, I want, would not want to employ a person who willingly turns over confidential information um, without, you know, without regard to the potential consequences of doing that. Or would you want to work for someone who asked right. for that information? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. So, so I think it's horrible. That that in itself is a horrible practice. I haven't heard of that more than just I, than myself. I've only heard of the one instance, and I'm glad to say it was uh, <laughs> there was a big outcry against that. So, as far as the the hiring scenario, I have to say I think it's going to you know 60 some percent of employers admit doing it. I think it's probably even more than that. Um, and I do actually think that there are ways to do it correctly. Um, but you have that—that that is a policy that you have to have in place, and that you have to have um, set up in advance. What are we going to look for? Who's going to look? Who's going to know about the results? Um, and take those steps in advance, and then communicate them to the candidate. So there's not this big secret. There's just no reason to have the big secrecy about it. So those are my thoughts on the on the hiring point. Yeah, I think those are really good points, Molly. I also think that if an employer really does an analysis of what they get out of this process. There's a tremendous amount of information that you really wish you didn't have. Uh, disabilities, religious affiliation, political affiliation. Uh, I can see in the future Alex having a field day um, with showing that at the time the person was refused employment or uh, terminated, there's an awful lot of protected information out there or information that put the individual in a protected category. You're, right. you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right, Jerry. I mean, that it, it immediately uh, cuts uh, an employer off at the pass from being able to assert that they weren't aware of whatever the protected category was just by dint of the fact that they had the information to access it and, uh, and did, in fact, access it. You know, the way I'll offer my solution to what is what I give my clients as the answer to that question because, I, on one hand, I do think it's valuable. At least now I think it's valuable, and employers want the information. But at the same time, they have to protect themselves and not el- eliminate these defenses of, I didn't know about the protected characteristic, or we're going to see a tremendous amount of negligent hiring claims, and we're going to see that increase. Here's the solution that I offer my clients. Um, I say create a list in advance of what you care about. If it's illegal activities, if it's confidential information being leaked from a former employer, 
if it's um, talking badly about the former employer, period, if it is um, disparaging language towards genders, minorities, th this is not acceptable. Any kind of hate language to me is not acceptable. But make a list. Make a list in, in advance, depending on what your corporate um, pers perspective is on what you do not want to see. Provide that list and, and put it in writing. Provide the list to a designated person who, in your HR group who is not the hiring person. Let that person run the search. They document, on, according to the list, only the things that are on that list. Um, they provide, if there's anything on the list they find that's uh, of concern per the list, they provide that list and that list only, you know, preferably in my world with some screenshots actually of what, you know, what the, the troubling thing is to the hiring person. So the only information that the hiring person ever sees is one documented. Two, it's only things that they are allowed to see and to consider. And that eliminates that too much information problem by cutting the, the setting up a Chinese wall between the person conducting the search and getting too much information and filtering that only what's relevant and lawful to be considered to the decision maker, I think that is a huge, I think that is a 99.9% .9 preventative step that employers can take to alleviate concerns about negligent hiring, too much information, and unlawful considerations in the hiring. Uh, Molly, I think that's not only a good suggestion, it really uh, is suggestive of something one of our clients encountered which is to outsource that function to a third entity so that you can't even argue that it was deemed available to the employer. Mm -hmm. The hiring of the third party is precludes the third party from providing information except on those particular items and uh, does exactly what you just said. It builds a wall. And I think that is a direction or trend that we're going to see followed and probably see a whole industry develop around it. This, this is Alex. I think I think it's an excellent idea, and I would even add to that. Uh, in addition to the list of what you do want to see, yep. is, is send them a list of what you don't want to see, and say make sure that when you send over this information that you either redact or don't send over, for example, uh, the candidate's age or the candidate's re religious affiliation or those, you know, any other type of uh, uh, information that um, the employer should not be considering under the uh, uh, equal opportunity laws. And then, and then the other step to take, I, th I think, is to share that information with candidates. I think you, you tell candidates here, just like you would, whether you outsource it to a third party or if you do it internally, I think you basically follow the law of the, you know, the, the Federal Credit Reporting Act and your Fair Credit Reporting Act, and you just say, candidates, here's what we found. You know, here's the screenshots and the documentation to back it up that concerns us. This is why we're not... Um, you know, we've eliminated you from consideration, and give them the opportunity to dispute it. And that way, if it's if it's inaccurate data, if you've got the wrong Bob Jones, then they have the opportunity to clarify that. So I think, and I think you notify them in in, in advance of doing it as well. So I, I think transparency is at the heart of it. So well, one additional piece of advice I'd offer is to make sure you understand the geographies in which you're going to be conducting this kind of a review. The rules change when you get outside the United States. One of the more interesting aspects of this is that in Turkey, if you do a review of social media accounts, it's technically a criminal offense as part of the hiring process. Hmm. So make sure you're aware of what the reach is since uh, the digital world is global. <laughs> a question for all of you. I wanted to know uh, what social media sites you personally use. Gary, are you on any? Uh, LinkedIn for sure. 
I use that a lot, and uh, we've only recently established a policy as to whether that's going to be owned by me or owned by my law firm. (laughs) And then uh, the rest of the social media sites, maybe it's because I'm getting jaded seeing all of the incredibly incriminating evidence come across. I access as part of my duties as a lawyer and not personally. All right. Uh, Molly, how about you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, of course, and and I think the answer is, of course, because if you're a lawyer and you're not on LinkedIn, I think that's probably a problem uh, for your marketing perspective. But I'm on LinkedIn. I'm a big Twitter fan, actually. Um, I'm a blogger. I've a couple blogs, and uh, I have a – my husband and I have a joint Facebook account, but I do not have a, a solo personal Facebook account for the exact <laughs> exact reasons that we've discussed today, I think. Um, and then, you know, I also belong to some more of what Rex was alluding to earlier, some of the more closed sites, you know, with um, Martindale Hubble um, and some of the other sites that are, are more uh, lawyer-specific. Rex, what about you? Which ones do you use? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of on most most sites out there, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, some of the closed sites uh, for lawyers, Martindale Hubble and uh, Legally Minded. Um, but mostly I use, uh, I guess, LinkedIn and, and Twitter. Um, you know, my Facebook is basically a stream of my uh, my blog posts. I also have a blog, so um, it, it kind of piggybacks off of how much you're sharing and where you're sharing it. Okay, and Alex, what social media sites do you use? LinkedIn only. Uh, I had a Facebook page for about a week uh, uh, to see what I could do with it for marketing purposes. And uh, people started coming out of the woodwork that I didn't really want to come out of the woodwork. So I I closed it down pretty quickly. All right. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that's pretty much everything. Did anyone want to add anything else? Well, I think that there is going to be a great deal of uh, attention paid to all of these issues as they develop, but I would encourage people who look at it to look at it broadly. Uh, I know the National Labor Relations Board, an organization that we tend to lose sight of, is looking at issues of concerted activity and how that relates to social media and the restrictions that you try to put in place which might violate that act, uh, the right to share salary information, for example, union organizing. And I think the other point that I would really stress is, is the educational aspect and a recognition that this is almost like a tidal wave, that I think if the employer tries to prohibit the use of social media at work, with the iPhone and all the new technology that's available, it's going to be very hard to accomplish that. So I think education and preventive policies are more important than uh, trying to prohibit it and then being very careful as to what the company sponsors, since then you have a much higher probability of uh, whatever is conducted on those sites being a responsibility of the employer. The one thing I can be sure of is that if we come back and do this seminar again, In a year or two years, there will be just a universe of new activities in the court and probably even regulations that will define what the relative rights to the workplace are. So I think we're going to be uh, finding plenty of employment in the future. All right. Uh, Well, thank you all very much. Um, I really appreciate it. 